there's some interesting new information about ischemic heart disease, stable ischemic heart disease. So we're not talking the kind that presents to the emergency room as an acute coronary syndrome. We're talking about the kind that presents to doctor's offices every day as the recurring symptoms like chest pain or other features compatible with coronary disease that goes through the usual workup of tests, which might include a cardiac stress test or a nuclear study, eventually makes its way to the angiography suite and cardiac catheterization shows the presence of clinically important stenosis of the coronary arteries. The patient has stable coronary artery disease. What do we do for such patients? Well, we have options. Treatment could include revascularization with percutaneous coronary intervention or with coronary artery bypass grafting, or it might include medical therapy. So what should we choose for our patients? What factors should guide those clinical decisions? And how much variation should we accept or expect from one center to another in how revascularization versus medical therapy is used? I'm Dr. Matthew Stanbrook, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Maria Benell. She's an epidemiologist in evaluative clinical sciences at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. And she, along with her colleagues at Sunnybrook and from the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences in Ontario, have just published a new study in CMAJ in which they have explored this variation in the early decision to treat stable ischemic heart disease with medical therapy alone or with revascularization. Maria, welcome. Thank you for having me here. So this is an interesting study you've done. We're seeing more and more studies like this where you see evaluations of variation from one center to another in how a therapy or a clinical practice is done. And I think a, a naive reader encountering this might, uh, might start by wondering, well, why is there variation at all? Shouldn't there be one right way of doing things and why do people do things differently? It seems to me the answer to that question always depends a lot on the clinical context. So let's talk about the evidence for treating stable ischemic heart disease, what should we be doing for these patients based on the evidence? Based on the evidence, we should be revascularizing patients who have certain symptoms of angina, so chest pain, and for those who have certain coronary anatomy. And patients, as I said, who are asymptomatic or have low-risk findings on non-invasive tests should not be revascularized. Instead, they should be getting medical therapy. Now, you mentioned certain coronary anatomy. When I was going through my training, I, I remember clearly that left main disease and triple vessel coronary disease almost always got revascularized. Is that still what the evidence says, or have there been changes in that over time? So patients with left main or like proximal anterior descending should all be revascularized, you know, patients who have significant stenosis. Despite all that large body of evidence we have for stable coronary disease, there are still some areas of uncertainty, aren't there, where, you know, clinicians and patients could go one way or the other. What are the areas of greatest uncertainty in this context? There have been guidelines that have been developed in 2009, and you know they, they reviewed common clinical scenarios for coronary revascularization. They looked at symptom status, extent of medical therapy, risk level assessed by non-invasive testing, as well as coronary anatomy. And um, they looked at about 180 different clinical scenarios, and then they scored them and found that mid-scores tended to have clinical scenarios where it was really uncertain whether coronary revascularization could improve health outcomes or survival. And in those situations, they really need more research there. 
And so because we have uncertain scenarios, this can lead to variation in, in rates of revascularization across regions. So now you've done this large, comprehensive study of how we're doing with use of different therapies in Ontario for stable uh, ischemic heart disease. Tell us what you did in your study. Well, these were patients, as you said, had documented stable ischemic heart disease, and this was diagnosed by index angiogram. Our time frame was October 1st, 2008 to September 30th, 2011. We had a follow-up to a maximum of December 31st, 2012. And so patients with under stable ischemic heart disease either get medical treatment alone or in combination with revascularization, which is two methods, either by percutaneous coronary intervention, also known as PCI, or coronary artery bypass grafting, also known as cabbage. Now, there's considerable controversy over the benefits of revascularization in these patients, and randomized control trials really have not found a difference between optimal medical therapy and revascularization in terms of major adverse events. So there is this wide variation in rates of revascularization, which suggests there might be different thresholds for invasive therapy. And really, there's a lack of data exploring drivers of this variation in the initial decision of, of whether patients are undergoing medical therapy or revascularization. So our objectives really were to determine if this variation is warranted. We did this by determining patient, physician, and hospital factors that influence this variation and evaluating its clinical consequences. The main data set was the Cardiac Care Network of Ontario, and this was also linked to administrative databases at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. In terms of the main factors we looked at, for patient factors, we looked at demographics, such as age, gender, socioeconomic status, medical comorbidities of these patients, cardiac risk factors, coronary anatomy and invasive testing, CCS class, which is a grading of angina symptoms. And these are all clinically relevant variables. For physician factors, we looked at physician age, physician gender, their years of practice, and patient volume. For hospitals, we looked at hospital type. So there are certain hospitals that are cath only, hospitals that have PCI and cath, and ones that are cath, PCI, and cabbage, so full centers. We looked at hospital type, but also annual cath volume at those hospitals. Now, in terms of clinical outcomes, we looked at all-cause mortality, and non-fatal myocardial infarction. And we looked at them really across three categories of hospitals. Within each hospital, we looked at the revascularization ratio, which is the number of patients revascularized over the number of patients on medical therapy at each hospital. And then we broke those hospitals down into equal tertials. So some were high revascularization ratio hospitals, some were medium, and some were low. And so when we looked at those outcomes of all-cause mortality and non-fatal myocardial infarction, we looked at them across those three categories of hospitals. You have a very comprehensive data set. You've got not only the health services data on every resident of Ontario, you've got more detailed data on coronary anatomy and all that sort of thing from 18 specialty centers, cardiac centers in Ontario. Would it be fair to say that that captures just about everyone who does revascularization in the province? I would say so. Within that time frame, if patients had multiple angiograms, we cut it down to the first one. You know, as long as they were diagnosed within that time frame by angiogram, then we capture those patients. And we're pretty confident about that. 
And you've captured people having angiography between 2008 and 2011. Was that to give you enough time to follow forward to look at, at clinical outcomes? Yes. So we wanted at least a year for follow-up. Now, there's a time lag between when someone gets an angiogram that shows, hey, you've got coronary disease, and when they can get revascularized, if that's going to happen. What time frame did you consider and why? We considered patients who were going to go on, undergo revascularization had to happen within 90 days of the index angiogram, and that's sort of the common wait times for revascularization in the province. You're looking at two types of outcomes in your study, as I understand it. One is what drives this variation among different the 18 different centers. And the second is how does this variation and the other factors that should drive it relate to clinical outcomes like death and, and non-fatal MI. So let's jump to what you found then. So first of all, how much variation is there in how one center versus another will choose to revascularize or treat with medical therapy patients with stable ischemic heart disease? So across the 18 cardiac centers that we looked at, this variation was about twofold across centers. So that was, that was pretty large. And what was interesting was that we were able to take that result, this, this idea of this variation, and we could find out what factors are contributing to that variation. So we were able to use a hierarchical logistic regression and looked at the proportional change in the variance of the hospital random effect as we started including the patient factors, the physician factors, and the hospital factors. I happen to notice as I look through how you categorize the hospital revascularization ratios that my hospital, the University Health Network, fell into the low ratio category. Your hospital, Sunnybrook, fell into the high ratio category. So yeah. at, at one level, I'm a little worried. Does that mean that the cardiologists at my hospital aren't aggressive enough and that yours are, are too aggressive? Or does all this make sense? So that comes down to this hierarchical model where you go first at patient factors and then physician factors and and then hospital factors, and you, you analyzed what, what was driving that. So what was the answer to that? What was driving the differences in use of revascularization? It was actually patient factors accounted for 67% of the variation in revascularization ratio, and we found that physician-hospital factors did not significantly contribute to that variation. That seems reassuring. It's based on the characteristics <laughs> of the patients. So it seems good. It's not the hospitals driving it. It's not the individual cardiologist driving it. It's mainly the patients. But there's another part to this story, isn't there? You then went ahead and looked at what happened to these patients based on whether or not they got surgery and all these other factors. And what did you find there? Well, we found that once we adjusted for all these patient-physician-hospital factors, our risk-adjusted models found that Patients that were treated at high revascularization ratio hospitals had higher mortality than those patients treated at low revascularization ratio hospitals. And we were able to pinpoint that it was specific to treatment by PCI. So patients who got PCI at high revascularization ratios were 30% more likely to die than patients treated for PCI at low revascularization ratio hospitals. It can mean several things. One thing is that because we were using observational data, perhaps we had some residual confounding and we weren't able to account for sicker patients enough. And maybe there's just sicker patients at high revascularization ratio hospitals. But this could truly indicate that patients 
at high revascularization ratio hospitals, these hospitals have a lower threshold to revascularize a patient, they might be receiving lower quality care. Um, and you can imagine that if you have a PCI or a cabbage, there are certain risks involved in that. And so patients would be at risk of an invasive procedure without any actual benefit to them. And so perhaps it's better to have those patients on medical therapy. You know, in terms of um, non-fatal myocardial infarction, we didn't find a difference between those three categories of hospitals. We had included in the model treatment on its own and found that cabbage patients were more likely to be readmitted for a myocardial infarction than medical therapy patients. We don't really want to interpret that too much because the main objective of our study was really to look at these categories of hospitals as a threshold to revascularize patients and how that affects outcomes rather than treatment itself. So we think that really more research would be needed to examine why cabbage patients are, are more likely to, to have a myocardial infarction. Those are interesting results, and the fact that patient-level variables seem to be driving this, although there is some residual effect of the hospital's revascularization ratio there, seems to be good. But I sort of, in looking through the, the fine details of those patient variables, I wonder if it's all positive to have that finding. For example, among those patient, patient factors, I note that income is one of the patient variables and that patients in the lowest income quintile were the most likely to get medical therapy as opposed to revascularization. Is that a good thing? I don't think so. If you look at that on its own, it probably isn't a good thing. Really what should be driving it is coronary anatomy and symptoms, not income level. So that is a bit surprising. So not all the patient factors you observed were necessarily those that, that were related to the evidence for what should be guiding treatment. I also note that what wasn't included in your model, because it's very hard to do this, is patient values and preferences. To what degree can a patient's preference and fears about the option of, on the one hand, uh, the possible complications of revascularization, which of course can include, in, in rare cases, death, versus the risk of not having a definitive treatment and the risk of, of a heart attack down the road. To what extent is it reasonable for that to drive the treatment decision? Um, I think that is reasonable. You know, these kinds of decisions should be based on both physician and patient working together on that, I think. But because we're using observational data, we can't measure everything. And so that would be a great thing to add. And, and maybe if you did some kind of other study other than an observational um, study in, in the future, then that can tease that apart. You know, also, we weren't able to capture necessarily all physician and hospital factors either. And we were unable to account for 33% of the variation. So it does suggest there probably are other factors contributing. And I sort of think back to where those different hospitals fell out in your three ratio categories and the fact that your hospital and mine are in different places there. I wonder if there are variations in patient values and preferences based on culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and education that the hospital and its local catchment area might be uh, an epiphenomenon of. And is some of the variation that one might see as concerning there actually be rational reflecting different values and preferences of the patient populations served by the hospitals. Yes, I could definitely see that. For sure. I mean those are those are some patient variables that would be definitely useful in analysis like these. 
So if I'm the Ontario Minister of Health and Long-Term Care and I read your new data, should I be worried about this variation? Should I be reassured? Should I do anything differently? What would you recommend to me and to policymakers like that? You know, we did find differences in clinical outcomes. For patients at high revascularization ratio hospitals treated by PCI, it's really telling us something about perhaps some of these patients shouldn't be undergoing revascularization. And so perhaps medical therapy is something that we should be considering more at these high revascularization ratio hospitals. For those of our CMAJ readers and listeners who are cardiologists who do cardiac catheterization and are now reading this new data of yours, um, what do you want your data to prompt in terms of their own self-reflection about their practices? Largely, it's pretty reassuring to them that we're vascularizing based on patient characteristics rather than individual physician beliefs or financial incentives or practice style of a hospital. So that's generally pretty reassuring in that way. But, you know, there is this difference in clinical outcomes for PCI patients, and, and perhaps we should be more closely reflecting the clinical guidelines. Well, you've certainly done some interesting work on a, a very common procedure and a common disease, and I, I, I'm sure this will generate a, a lot of interest from a, a broad readership. Thank you for being with us today to, to help make clear what it is you've done. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Maria Benell, an epidemiologist in Evaluative Clinical Sciences at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. To read the research article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.